Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone. Before I get into the second part of this review on Emmanuel Acho's book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, I'm going to give you a little bit of background of how this podcast is being recorded today. So I have a 17-month-old daughter, and she has these days where she likes to scream at the top of her lungs for sport. So I am actually trying to squeeze in recording this episode as my wife and daughter have gone out for a quick grocery run. So hopefully we don't hear any background screeching, but in the event that they get home before I'm done recording, enjoy the ambiance. All right. So today I'm going to go over part two. This book is broken down into three parts. And part two of uh, his book is called Us and Them. It's kind of the overarching theme of that section. And so I'm going to jump right in. There is a chapter called The House Always Wins Systemic Racism. And it wasn't until I was kind of looking back over my highlights to go over this that I got the significance of the title. When he says, the house always wins, it's twofold. One, obviously, white supremacy. But two, he goes into the inequalities within housing, which historically has robbed folks of color from being able to generate wealth uh, because they haven't had the same opportunities to purchase real estate. So I thought I would share that little tidbit. But to kind of get this started, I'm going to share a quote. Don't ever let anyone convince you that we are in a post-racial America. This term got thrown around a lot during the years 2008 to 2016, With a black president, how could America possibly still be racist? You don't hear the phrase so much anymore, but let me be clear. We will never achieve a post-racial America as long as the gears of systemic racism continue to churn. And believe me when I tell you, they are still churning, churning, churning away. End quote. I want to share a little insight on this in my own experience. So I learned a lot about slavery, racism, the Jim Crow years, the civil rights movement. I learned a ton of information when I was in fourth grade. As circumstances had it, I switched schools in the middle of that school year. And I went from Being at a school where I was kind of falling through the cracks, a lot of the teachers had kind of written me off, to a school that had a bad reputation because it happened to be in the middle of a housing project. But it was actually the absolute best public school that I ever went to in my 12 years. Uh, The teacher that I had for history was very out of the box with her approach. So we watched 
documentaries on the KKK and the different, you know, tragedies that occurred to Black people during the Civil Rights Movement. Looking back, it probably wasn't age appropriate, but I really appreciate it because it allowed me to see what was going on in the world before I was here. And so I say that to give context to the fact that when I was in fourth grade, watching those things, I had a unique perspective. One, because during those times, it would have been illegal or deadly for me to exist because black man and a white woman getting together and creating a child would have been a huge problem in the state of Virginia, especially. But also, as I looked at those things, I thought, wow, I'm so glad at how far our country has come. And that's childhood innocence, not really knowing much beyond the world that I saw. Unfortunately, as I entered adulthood, I realized that I was mistaken in fourth grade, thinking that, like the last quote said, that we were in a post-racial America. And so I share that to kind of jump into the next quote here. For starters, a definition. Systemic racism is the legitimizing of every dynamic, historic, cultural, political, economic, institutional, and person-to-person that gives advantages to white people while at the same time producing a whole host of terrible effects for black people and other people of color. Those effects show up as inequalities in power, opportunities, laws, and every other metric of how individuals and groups are treated. Which is to say, systemic racism is making the unequal treatment of people of color the national norm. End quote. And anyone with ears or eyes can cite several examples of systemic racism that we've seen just in the last calendar year. But as that came to a boil, a lot of people have looked further back to really start to investigate some things that have occurred historically that didn't quite have the same platform. And so the reason systemic racism Well, there are many reasons why it's a problem, but institutions that set it up for people of color to not have the same access as their non-melanated counterparts is literally killing people of color. And so I'm going to share a couple of statistics here, but I'm also going to share a little bit of history behind as Emmanuel Acho provides. So, quote, according to a 2009 study by Northeastern University, high school dropouts are 63 times more likely to be incarcerated than college grads. You needn't be a statistician to see a correlation between schools and prisons, one that's now known as the school-to-prison pipeline. At about 13% of the U.S. population, Black people make up more than one-third of those in federal and state prisons. Ironically, some say this started with a little adjustment to the U.S. Constitution called the 13th Amendment. Quote, neither slavery, not involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime, keep that in mind, whereof the parties shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Plenty of scholars have linked that exception clause to the rise of what is now called mass incarceration or the prison industrial complex. Around the time the amendment was passed, Southern white people were inventing black codes, laws that penalize black people for stuff like not showing proper respect 
or doing, quote, malicious mischief and punish those, quote, crimes as misdemeanors or felonies, depending on how severe someone, almost always a white person, decided that they were. Those vague laws coerced more black people into prison than ever before. It wasn't that black people had all of a sudden become criminals. It was that the laws began to criminalize black people. States were then able to put prisoners to work through convict leasing, deals that sent the imprisoned back to slave owners. While the 13th Amendment ended slavery on the surface, its loophole paved the way for returning many black people to slavery. Prisons today don't have programs like that. They just have mandatory labor projects, sans a living wage, work disproportionately by black people. Hmm. End quote. I talked about the prison pipeline when I was doing the review of Dr. Joy DeGry's book, Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. I'll link the episodes in that series uh, in the show notes of this episode. But I've at least had awareness for several years now being in this field of mental health. And going through school and, of course, learning about the 13th Amendment, we learned this freed the slaves. However, there's a, a loophole in there by saying unless they're incarcerated for a crime. Well, anytime there's a loophole, people are going to take it and run with it. So that's how we had uh, systems like where people are being charged with crimes to feed the reduced labor in the South because they're no longer able to get free labor out of black people. So now let's charge them with crime so that they can be incarcerated. So then the prisons can lease out black labor to the very same plantations that enslaved either them or their ancestors. As we dig into this more and more, we see how deeply ingrained injustice and white supremacy are in many of the systems that govern our country to this day. So to conclude that that chapter, Acho says, quote, dismantling systemic racism is nothing short of dismantling white supremacy. It's going to take a Herculean effort by all of us to tear it down, end quote. So the next chapter in this section is titled Shifting the Narrative, Reverse Racism. Let's go with Emmanuel Acho's definition. Quote, reverse racism, a.k.a. the idea of black people or anyone non-white being racist against white. I've had many people ask me if reverse racism exists. They often pair this with a second question. Is it even possible for black people to be racist? What is reverse racism if it is not, well, real? It's a prime example of what scholar Alice McIntyre calls white talk, aka strategies white people use, consciously or not, to insulate themselves from their collective participation in racism. Another way into this idea is the term white fragility, popularized by sociologist Robin, Robin D'Angelo. When white people are put in situations that challenge their identity, quote, we withdraw, defend, cry, argue, minimize, ignore, 
end quote, explains D'Angelo, and in other ways push back to regain our racial position and equilibrium. Put very simply, y'all get defensive. The feeling of defensiveness is white fragility, and the way you hit back with accusations like reverse racism is white talk, end quote. I'm going to go on to share a quote that H.O. give summarizing his chapter on the concept of reverse racism. But before I do that, I want to share some insights from my own life, but also from things I've observed being a therapist. It's a slippery slope to say that a group of people is not capable of being racist. It's worth mentioning that I have definitely witnessed instances where people of color have been racist. And I've also seen Black people who are traumatized by the many institutions of white supremacy take their experiences and act out in a way that can become racist towards white. However, if anyone is allowed to behave and act in a way that places an entire class of people in a certain box, it can turn into racism. So while obviously the biggest problem is white supremacy and the fallouts from that, it's worth mentioning that people of color can be racist too. There's a whole thing within the Black community known as colorism. I've spoken about that in previous episodes, in which there's racism within the Black race based on skin tone. So racism is a very complicated situation, but I'm going to conclude this chapter on reverse racism with this quote. There is no such thing as reverse racism. If you want to oppress someone, you're going to need power over them as a group, and no group holds it over white people. There literally aren't enough black people with institutional authority over white people to facilitate systemic racism against them. On a purely numbers level, this would be tough. Black celebrities may loom large in our society, but black people are still only 13.4% of the population. White people still make up 59.7%. End quote. And an example that Emmanuel Acho gives of something that people, uh, white people give to somehow provide validity to the idea that there is a such thing as reverse racism. In other words, white people are at a disadvantage because they're white. That's basically what reverse racism implies. Um, And so the example that a lot of these people will reference is affirmative action. So here's a quote. In a nutshell, affirmative action is an effort to redress the systemic inequalities caused by centuries of discrimination. To try to achieve measures of social equality, it gives preferential treatment to groups that have suffered those longstanding inequalities. Some people argue that it is unfair to now give black people preference and thereby treat white people unfairly. To that I say, what's fair? If you ask me, fairness can only occur between equal parties, and black people have never been treated as equals in America. As a matter of fact, unfairness doesn't even scratch the surface of how they've been treated. End quote. 
there are two more chapters in this section. And rather than kind of breaking those chapters down, I want to just share two quotes that kind of summarize that content. And I will leave it open for interpretation. So chapter 10 is titled Thug Life, Justice for Some. And so here's the quote from that chapter that I want to share. These days, the all lives matter crowd often trots out statistic that the majority of black people are killed by black people and asks why black folks care about white on black crime, specifically death by police officer, more than black on black crime. That's not the case. Black people care about being murdered. In addition to its murky genesis, black on black crime is a misleading term without context. The most important bit of context that the majority of violent crimes against white people are perpetrated by white people. As sad as it may seem, people generally commit crimes against people of the same race. And I've never heard anyone in my life, have you, reference white people killing white people as, quote, white-on-white crime. You want to know the truth? Poverty, not race, is a more accurate predictor of who commits crimes. To the extent that black-on-black crime exists, it's the product of segregated housing, concentrated poverty, and unequal schooling. According to the Bureau for Justice Statistics, people living in households with income below the federal poverty line are twice as likely to commit violent crime than high-income households, regardless of race. We've been doing it wrong. The best tough-on-crime bill is a tough-on-poverty bill, end quote. The reality is, when one doesn't have access to resources, their options are limited. And we can go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you don't have your basic necessities of life, human nature is to go into a survival mode. Um, So I'm going to kind of leave that quote where it's at. And so the final chapter of section two is titled, Picking Up the Pieces, The Black Family Struggle. And so Acho goes into the history behind black families. And if you look at the typical black family today, it's not your stereotypical nuclear family. Most black families uh, are non-traditional in structure. There is a huge rate of absentee fathers. But this didn't come just out of the blue. If you think about it, in slavery, marriages were not a thing between slaves. Families were often split apart with no control from the parents involved um, because you don't have rights when you're enslaved. So while it may seem like absentee fathers are the norm, we must look at it from the perspective of hundreds of years of families being split apart and the inability to model those nuclear family principles. People of color don't have several generations of, you know, mom, dad raising the kids and passing that down to future generations. We're coming from hundreds of years of systemic fracturing of families. So I'm going to share this quote. If you told me in any given year 
that I had a one in four chance of winning a Super Bowl, I would have been stoked. But here's a one in four statistic that's way less appealing. About one in four black Americans will experience an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. Researchers say that black people that experience chronic racism can develop something called racial battle fatigue, a state that includes, among other symptoms, anxiety, worry, hypervigilance, headaches, and increased heart rate and blood pressure. A study by the National Comorbidity Survey Replication and the National Survey of American Life found that almost 1 in 10 black people actually have PTSD. And whether it's PTSD or something else, black people are 20% more likely than white people to suffer serious psychological distress. Suicide is the third leading cause of death for black people ages 15 to 24, and black men are at four times higher risk than black women. I don't mean to fill your head with more numbers, and I know these are particularly bleak, but I want you to have some sense of just how much a toll everything we've talked is having on black folks. It's tougher to keep a family together when you're fighting for your mental health, if not your life. But let's not forget the unequal education system, the stereotypes that vilify young black men, the justice system that forms a prison pipeline, discrimination in hiring, and for good measure, those racist housing practices. All of those things work together to destabilize black people, making it harder and harder to keep families intact. So, the next time you hear someone spouting off about broken black families, make sure you help contextualize the issue for them. Talk about the history of black families and slavery. Talk about how the media portrays black people and the way it shapes all of our perceptions. Talk about systemic racism. End quote. <sighs> I got to take a deep breath there. So this uh, section of the book is definitely the meat and potato so far, and I'm really looking forward to section three. Part one and two, we're talking about foundations and examples of racism and implicit bias. This final part is going to talk about unity and steps forward. So, so I'm really looking forward to reading the last part and sharing that with you. So be on the lookout for part three coming soon. Take care. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.